Okay, dear colleagues, um, moving away from learning and teaching, and uh, we're now looking at uh, transnational perspectives on uh, higher education and on global well-being. When we look at much of our own research and our policy, we focus on how universities contribute to the economic and the social development of our own countries. We are absolutely obsessed with how our universities can be propelled up the ladder of world-class rankings to prove that we have global esteem. However, many of the major issues that we face today as a global society, such as the destruction of the environment, rising inequality, and violence across borders can only be solved by countries and universities working together. In this sense, the question of how higher education contributes to global well-being becomes very important. I would like to propose that this is a crucial and an under-researched area and one in which we can fruitfully explore through the lens of transnational higher education. We have in this very room many colleagues who have undertaken very inspirational and important work on transnational education and on global well-being. But I would like to say that the, this sort of work is the exception rather than the rule. The existing research on transnational higher education is often bifurcated. It is either hailed as a saviour to low-income countries or it is cast as a new form of imperialism. The saviour argument is that transnational higher education meets growing demand, improves quality and builds capacity. Those who use an imperialist lens argue that higher education has become a new arena for exploitation and that Western universities dump low-cost teaching, low-quality teaching in developing countries. They also argue that it is a form of soft power to influence world politics, economics, and culture. And of course, the reality both overlaps as well as sits somewhere in between the saviour and the imperial scenarios. The space between these two scenarios provides us with key research areas and I want to present just four of these, which I hope will open up some research opportunities for us. First, research on transnational higher education needs to be contextualized more firmly in a multipolar world of shifting power. China, for example, has challenged global governance. China has deployed Confucius institutes worldwide. 
Brazil is hugely influential with its non-aligned stance, its high level of South-South activity, and its soft form of anti-imperialism, especially against the USA. At the same time, transnational corporations are entering the higher education arena. They are gaining influence over governments and they are shaping policy and regulation in their own interests. They are really driving forward the marketization, the global marketization of higher education. So I think it is very difficult to divide the world into the powerful higher education of the global north and the powerless higher education of the global south. There are high-status, well-resourced universities in poorer countries which are intimately connected to the global power nodes of higher education. There are also poorly resourced institutions in rich countries which are detached from power and confined to their localities. In other words, we are witnessing what I have termed the combined and uneven development of higher education worldwide. This holds out the possibility of new forms of collaboration, but it also opens up to new forms of imperialism, including South-South imperialism. The second area that I would like to uh, open up for discussion is the need to undertake more multidisciplinary research on the interaction of national and global quasi-markets in higher education. We have the brilliant analyses, of course, of, of Piketty, who undertakes a historical analysis of the distribution of wealth between and within countries, and Simon has articulated that absolutely brilliantly in, in the keynote. But Piketty doesn't engage with colonialism, slavery, or imperialism. And Piketty says he doesn't engage with these issues because of problems of data unavailability. But I think somehow we have to actually find a way to overcome these research gaps, this lack of data, or we will end up reproducing the core and the periphery in our own research. We are also witnessing market fundamentalism, by which I mean the expansion of markets, market relations, and market values, which enter all areas of higher education, pedagogy, curriculum, the academic profession, what it means to be a scholar. And it would be very interesting to look at what are the financial, the ideological, and the cultural mechanisms that are embedding market competition in very many different countries in the world. How does this look in different countries? What are the consequences? Are there regions of resistance? And what are the consequences for global well-being? Much of our research focuses on the winners, but what happens to the losers? 
Do the resources associated with winning trickle down to all institutions and to all countries, or do the winners take all? The assumption that public higher education always contributes to the public good is, of course, misplaced. We know that. However, the current vilification of everything that is public and everything that is non-market-based has little basis in fact, and I would say is hugely ideologically driven. And so it is essential that we research policy and regulation that is not simply handed down by powerful actors on the world stage, but that is context-sensitive, that creates the space for innovation, and that protects us against the most corrosive effects of global markets. To borrow Sandal's words, what are the moral limits of global markets in higher education? Thirdly, research on how transnational education impacts on employability is widespread. We have a lot of research evidence on that. We have less research evidence on how transnational education may impact on culture. While we know that transnational education may erode indigenous culture, I think as researchers we need to avoid a binary logic contrasting Western and non-Western culture or modernity with tradition. This would deny the differences within groups and the very real way in which people's lives interact with both the global and the local at the same time. Equating knowledge in a very simplistic way with culture will also result in us being absolutely unable to evaluate knowledge. What is good knowledge? Is good knowledge part of one culture? How do we evaluate that? I think, however, there are some very interesting uh, natural experiments occurring all over the world. And an example is the medical school at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa. Here, scientific methods are being used to research both indigenous and Western medicine and how the two can interact. And I think it is these initiatives which actually move us out of the binary between the West and the rest. I want to end by suggesting that it is also very important to research trailblazer institutions that contribute to global well-being. Important examples here would include the higher education program provided for refugees in the Middle East and Africa by the United Nations. A second example would be the medical school in Cuba, which provides free medical education to students from the most disadvantaged communities in low-income countries. Cuba is renowned for producing high-quality doctors who undertake humanitarian work worldwide, and their pedagogy is absolutely fascinating. Um, it's, it's, it's very wide, it's um, 
they do philosophy as well as medicine. Uh, they do sociology. It's incredible. And I think that those sorts of pedagogical experiments would be very, very interesting uh, for us to explore in terms of policy. A further inspirational example is a Mazalert, which brought together scientists from 14 research institutes in South America and Europe to work on the effects of climate change and the effects of public policy on climate change on the Amazon. To turn the spotlight away for just a moment from the race for world-class universities, satisfaction, employability, competition, audits, etc., etc., to institutions that are doing things differently, to institutions that are really contributing to global well-being would be both illuminating and inspirational. Thank you.